I know I've spoken on your podcast in the past, Mr. Paul Boag. Is that how you're going to start your show? I always start it like that. Yeah, I always start it. What as kind if... of start is that? That's not a proper start to a podcast. I just like people to drop in as if it's kind of midway through a conversation. I don't need to do like a grand introduction. Oh, you've got no sense of showmanship. Well, I used to do an intro, but you know, to be honest, I mean, you know, it's not radio. This is not as good as something on the BBC as somebody is once it not? commented. No, somebody once commented that. They said, no, this is, this is a, my personal soapbox. Right. <clears throat> well, it certainly isn't professional. I just like people to feel as if they're overhearing two people on a train, perhaps. On a uh, train? In a doctor's surgery. No, 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 no. Pub. Um, perhaps at the vet. At the vet? Yeah. You're strange. Overhearing a conversation. Okay. And, uh, and dropping in. So that's, I don't do an introduction because then it just makes it sound like, um, like a radio show. So you're basically trying to create a kind of voyeuristic kind of, Slightly creepy, listening into other people's conversation vibe to the whole thing. I'm just trying to clarify, because, you know, if I'm going to be doing this with you, I want to get the right kind of tone. Oh. <laughs> so do I Do I talk about my hemorrhoids? Is that the way it works? Well, I mean, if you want to bring them up um, right. at any point, then, um, you know, if you want to shift uncomfortably in your chair, don't mind me. Okay, that's fine, as long as I know. Carry on. You were doing great. You know, <laughs> I, I know that I'm not Tony Blackburn. <laughs> I, I got to see him once. I got to meet Tony Blackburn. It really? was possibly the highlight of my life. Is that who you model your uh, your radio performances on? Can you not tell? I thought you were more Kid Jensen myself. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, could be. I'm happy with that. So you were saying before I interrupted you. I can't remember now. Something about... Me being on the show. It was, well, I was going to introduce you because by way of not doing an introduction, I just <laughs> drop your name into the first sentence. So then oh. boring people who don't want to listen all the way through, they can figure it out. They can understand who it is that I'm talking to. So that's why I was saying, you know, hello, Paul Boag. As if I, mean, I was dropping it in really naturally. And then you interrupted me. And then I ruined the whole thing. Yeah. But you're making a huge presumption people know who I am. No, who the hell cares who I am? And also, nobody has a clue what it is I actually do. Even I don't know what it is that you do. No, nobody does. It's a secret. Marcus doesn't know what the... have the faintest clue what you do. <laughs> I think you were the right the first time you started saying that sentence. <laughs> anyway, this, and I was, I was going to say, before you so rudely interrupted, I was mm -hmm. going to say that... This could be the first time that we have a serious conversation on the podcast. Oh, well, I ruined that for a start, didn't I? Well, maybe not too serious. But no, you and me, we, we, we do have conversations. We do have serious, sensible conversations from time to time. Well, are they serious and sensible, or is it just grumpy old men ranting about the world? Well, there is an element of that. Because, I mean, there's a fine line, isn't there, between, you know... Uh, to, to say it's serious and sensible gives the impression that maybe we say something of value. I essentially just think we rant at the state of the universe. I don't think it's boring in an old man kind of way, though, because we don't talk about car parks or traffic on the A13. No, we don't. We do at least talk about things of value, like, you know, the meaning of life and, and you know, the state of the world and things like that. And Doctor Who and Judge Dredd. And, and Doctor Who and Judge Dredd and how young people don't understand why do policemen wear glasses? Because I think that's a disadvantage in a, you know, in a criminal um, encounter. 
Well, my problem with policemen these days is that they're all five years old. I feel like I'm being told off by my son. <coughs> Have you not noticed that? They've all got really young. I don't know about you, but I don't frequently encounter policemen. Ah. Okay, I feel like I've probably gone down a road that I want to stop now. Nice weather, isn't it? It's the restraining order. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> no, I, I thought that we could talk about businessy things today. And I was going to, when I was, when I asked you to come on the show and I thought about some of the things that we are both interested in. Mm-hmm. This is supposed to be sort of a businessy podcast, really. Yeah. Um, not that it often is, but I thought that we could talk about some of the things that we both do from, let's say, a client management point of view. Cause you know, I know mm. you do a lot of work with clients. I do a lot of work with clients. You might not be designing anymore no but you are the guy that deals with the clients manages expectations builds relationships all that kind of stuff and that's what i was going to talk about today yeah sure um but you know i'm actually feeling in a bit more of a a reflective mood today oh, okay which i think is almost common at the moment among our circle of friends yeah there does seem to be a lot of that going around i mean i've just come back from um uh, a conference in charlotte blend conference and mark bolton was there and we sat and uh, on a couple of evenings um me mark bolton and jen simmons i don't know whether you know her i've been on her podcast a couple of times ah well there you go um and we just sat around and we kind of waxed lyrical about the state of the web community and about priorities and 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 relationships and all of that kind of stuff. And it was a very, I, I've been having a lot of conversations like that, but I, I kind of, to begin with, I, I wondered whether I, I was having some kind of midlife crisis and that that was making me think about all this kind of stuff. But I'm coming to the clu- conclusion. I think that the web or the web community is having a midlife crisis. I think we've kind of, cause we're not that kind of young sparky community we were. You know, when, you know, I don't know, back in 2005, which seemed to be a, a, a critical point, you know, when we were all kind of there helping one another and we were all kind of changing the world and we had these very idealistic views of, you know, what was going on and all the rest of it. And that I think maybe now we've kind of got to the slightly, you know, melancholy, middle age kind of all oh, the world sucks a little bit. And, you know, oh, we've got to actually, you know, do this as a job and it's kind of grown up. Perhaps that's what's going on. Perhaps the web community is having a midlife crisis. I think that's a pretty safe assumption. Um, Bolton, by the way, is a great person that you can talk about car parks with because <laughs> his dad is a car park architect. I know. I've heard this. So he's the only guy that I legitimately have heard of where you can actually turn up to some kind of social gathering and talk about the multi-story car park that you parked in from an architectural standpoint. Yes, I'm not sure his wife is so keen on that. I think she gets quite fed up every time they go and park somewhere that Mark just rants uncontrollably about the the organisation of the car park. I'm not even going to go there because uh, I could talk about car parks all day. Can you really? No, not really, no. No, because that would make you exceptionally dull. I think that we are in a bit of a reflective mood. And you and I, we had a wonderful talk when we were together at Deconstructor a few weeks ago. Sure. And... You know, I haven't really told you this, but you really, really helped me to see things from 
uh, a different, more, let's say, balanced perspective. <laughs> That's the first time I've ever been called balanced. I like it. God, do I, did I need a bit of balance. <laughs> um, so, you know, without going into those personal details, because nobody wants to listen to my neuroses, I thought that we could maybe spend an hour today just being a little bit more philosophical, perhaps, than we normally are on this podcast. Sure. And then we can talk about Doctor Who and Judge Dredd, if you like. Yeah, well, you always talk about Doctor Who and Judge Dredd. That and apes. Oh, no, that's, apes. That's are... the limit of your repertoire, isn't I'm not allowed really? to talk about Planet of the Apes now until 2016. Why is that? Well, because that's when the next film will be out. That's quite a long time, isn't it? I'm surprised you can make it that long. You see, now we're talking about apes. Yeah, we are. We mustn't. No, you are right. It was a really good conversation. I, I think there's a, there's, um, there's a vibe going on at the moment. And I think you kind of got, you got sucked into that vibe a little bit. And I, I see it with other people as well. And Dan Edwards has just posted a thing, um, uh, about his experiences at the moment, how he's lost his, He's lost his drive and he's lost his enthusiasm and he's been ground down a bit. And I think I got the same vibe from you when we were we were chatting. And and I think a lot of people are in that place at the moment. And I think it's for lots of reasons. I think it's it's partly because of the state of the industry at the moment. I don't think it's the easiest of times at the moment for a lot of. Um, a lot of freelancers and a lot of agencies. I think those of us that, that are running agencies have noticed kind of a slower period and, and that c- creates worry and stress in you. And those of us that are freelancers, I've spoken to several freelancers recently that are either working on smaller projects they're not quite so excited about or they're work, you know, they're finding that they're living from month to month and that they're not particularly well off. So there's there's a kind of a bit more austerity going on at the moment. So I think that's partly affecting people. And then I think that also because the web community has grown, um, you're noticing more of the the animosity and the nitpicking and the criticizing that is a kind of a, a, an intrinsic part of human nature. But when when the community is small and tight, which it used to be, um, you know, those things uh, kind of got suppressed easier. Um, while now I think they're more out in the open. And so I think there's a bit, I think people are just a little bit flat and a little bit down, really. I think that's a fair way of putting it, isn't it? No, I, I couldn't agree with you more for a strange coincidence. Um, <laughs> does occasionally happen. Well, once in a while. Um, yeah, I mean, Dan's post, and we'll put a link to it in the show notes. Um, actually really did resonate with me because, as you know, that's how I've been feeling over mm. the last sort of uh, few months. And it's more, I think, about kind of uh, finding your place in a way. Um, yeah. It's about things changing and not necessarily knowing where you fit inside uh, a place where it was familiar before. Yeah. You know, we had an industry that was familiar, and I hate to use the word community. I never use the word community. Um, because that implies that people look after each other. And I think that sometimes it's shown that we don't. So I, I think of it as an industry. And, you know, it was familiar and I kind of understood my place in it for a while. And now I'm not so sure. And I think that has an effect on your psychology. So Dan's post was definitely, definitely something that resonated with me. And yeah, from a business point of view, it's been tough actually, considering the fact that the British economy is supposed to be, you know, on the up and coming out of recession or whatever. You know, I have to say, we've had 
not such a good year.、Mm. And it's not that we've not been busy. I think we've been busier, but we've been busier on smaller, lower-value, shorter projects、uh, that. You know, increased stress levels are not quite so creatively satisfying that you always feel like you're rushing to catch up. You know, you're like a hamster on a wheel, etc. And I think all of that plays into the psychology of it. Yeah, I think. I mean, in terms of the state of the industry, I, I think we're seeing a bit of a shift going on. For a start, we're seeing a lot more people coming into the industry, which I think is part of the reason why a lot of people are not quite sure of their place in the industry anymore. Because, you know, where once there was a relatively small number of us that were.、Um, I don't know. You know, you were the 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 CSS mastery guy, and you know, and, and that was Andy Bird. Yeah, I know. I did that on purpose. Oh God! People do that though. He actually, Jeremy <laughs> Keith, Jeremy Keith. What a, <laughs> a smashing conference a couple of years ago. Yeah, all of the speakers were being interviewed by、uh, by Mel at Smashing. Yeah, and I think I was last. To be spoken to, and、mm. Jeremy had obviously got there first, and the primed Mel. And the first question that she asked me was, "So you wrote this book, CSS Mastery? Tell me about that." <laughs> and I literally, I, I nearly spat out the beer that I'd just <laughs> swallowed. But you know, you know what I'm getting at. We I do all, know what you get. We all had our place. I was the the podcast guy, and now everybody does podcasts, and there's bloody hundreds of them. And 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 so we've kind of lost our place a little bit there, and we've lost that kind of unique.、Um, you know, when there's so many people in the industry, we're not unique anymore. The truth is that there are twenty other people that could do our job, or more than that, in a lot of senses.、Um, I, I think there's also an element that we, a lot of us, have been doing the same thing for a bloody long time.、Mm. You know, I think one of the ways that I cope with the set、uh, with the situation in the industry is that I. I never stay still. You know, I started off as a UX designer,、um, then became a UX designer and front end coder. Then, then got heavily into、um, usability and usability testing and accessibility, and so I go on. And now I'm doing, you know, business consultancy, basically. So that's kind of how I cope with it: is that that I'm always changing what I do. But、um, I think the, the the other aspect here is an industry shift, as I said, that there's less work around in the industry, and I I think part of the reason for that is that more people have come into it. But I think the other part of it is I think as the web becomes more business critical to people, they're bringing it in house. I, I, that's the truth of it. That、um, you know, more and more of the larger clients that that you would like to work with are bringing this kind of stuff in house,、um, and I think we're seeing a shift in the industry because because of it. That that people like yourself that were used to working with larger clients,、um, you know, are, are finding themselves having to work with smaller clients that haven't brought it in house yet. Um, and of course, the bottom end of the market squeezing up as well because there's there's automated tools that are coming in, things like Squarespace and stuff like that, for the very bottom end of the market.、Um, so there's been this squeeze in the middle. So the way that we've kind of coped with that as Headscape is that we increasingly do consultancy now. You know, we we provide that that experience and expertise that that、um, that clients don't have in house.、Um, you know, and some of our projects just don't involve any design or development at all. You know, and we don't even do usability. We're just kind of structuring and organising their governance and how their team works and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because we are 
we are repositioning ourselves a little bit as a company because we want to be focusing on the creative. Um, and I've now, after 16 years of, of, you know, saying I'm a web designer, I now see the web as just a channel. You know, it's the main yeah. channel that we, um, work on for our clients. But what we do is more and more about communication. It's more and more about content. Um, mm. and it's more and more about good taste rather than the mechanics of, uh, you know, building a website. Mm. And that's why I think that I'm, certainly going in an opposite direction to the way that I feel maybe the rest of the industry goes, yeah. which is towards a much more technical, a much more product design led approach to things, which is, you know, I would term classic UX, Yeah, which of course, and I've talked about this on previous shows, which is really not something that interests me. And I think that's going to be okay because I think that there is always going to be a place for people to handle content for clients and, you know, yeah. and to write things and to select things and to understand what the message is that the client is trying to communicate to their customer and to do that in the best way. And, you know, I presume people would have, would call that marketing. Yeah. Um, although, you know, I've never done any, any, any marketing training, but it just seems like a natural kind of extension to what we do. And I don't think that kind of stuff's going to go out of fashion. And it's the stuff that we enjoy doing. You know, mm. we don't enjoy the technical side of things. You know, the last thing I want to do, um, is to bugger about with somebody's DNS settings. But I mean, that's a, I think that's an example. Both, both Headscape and, uh, and you guys are both having to reposition themselves and that that's where a lot of these feelings come of 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 um i don't mind when you said that you know there are lots of new people coming in and you know i used to be the css guy you know there are now younger much cleverer people that know about css you know whether it's chris coya or um sarah Sawedan, um or you know people like this that come along and i'm you know i'm, I'm not trying to hold on by this by the tips of my fingers. Um, no, it takes, but it adjustment. Still takes adjustment. Um, and I actually welcome that. I think that you, you see people moving on. You see people like, for example, mm. our friend Dan Cedar Holm, you know, used to be the CSS guy and now is the dribble guy. Mm. You see other people that we've known kind of evolve their businesses in different ways. And I think that that takes a little bit of adjustment. To, you know, to, when, when you don't have that, you know, when you don't have a product or you don't have a sort of a, a, a side business that you've grown into a main business, um, when you're still doing that mm. in general, that kind of client services, um, it, you know, it, it takes a little bit of thinking about. I think the other, the other aspect of this, when you've got a, a marketplace that's becoming more competitive and more people coming into it, I, I think that um, and, and that people are struggling with their own businesses. I think that's part of the reason that you sometimes get some of the animosity that we see thrown around. Um, you know, because, because people get desperate and grumpy and, you know, all those human characteristics. And I think, you know, the community, you don't like the word community, but I, I call it a community. Um, because I do see some real, well, we'll get to that because I do want to talk about positivity later on. Yeah. But what I'm getting at there, I guess, we, yeah, we'll come back to that in a minute. But I think the thing I'm getting at is that we do like to kind of 
I don't know, leaper, you know, leaper, the people that we suddenly label trolls who aren't really trolls. They're just people having a bad day or are stressed in their work or worried about their future. And they lash out as humans do sometimes, you know. Um, so a great example of that is um, now I've got to be really careful the way I word this, because otherwise I will get lashed at over this. But but some of the um, and I say some of the comments that people um, go on about, you know, uh, female speakers, for example, at conferences, um, you know, you know, they're only on the stage because they're a woman, etc. Now, I'm not for a minute saying that, you know, that sexism is something acceptable or something, you know, okay or anything like that, because I don't want to get myself into trouble and I don't believe it anyway. But I think there is a degree where some people lash out like that because they're just afraid. They're afraid of their own future. They're struggling to bring work in. They're, you know, they're, they're struggling to, to build a profile and uh, a following that you need these days in order to kind of get job security and stuff like that. So I guess, I guess what I'm getting at is, is whenever I get negativity, and I, I know you do too, um, you know, whenever I get lashed out at for whatever reason on Twitter, I always, I always ask myself the question, why? Why are they saying that? Why are they doing that? Um, and, and never kind of just settle on the things that they've said. Because the one thing I've really learned online is that people don't mean what they say. Um, you know, I, I remember a, a classic example where a guy called me, uh, um, the C word and just announced that Paul Boag is a real, you know, <laughs> and it really took me back. Um, and so I decided to actually, uh, I, I wrote to him, you know, I replied to him and I didn't reply, you know, aggressively in any way. I just said, wow, that really hurts. What brought that about? What made you say that? And actually it turns out he basically just had a shit day and something I'd said had annoyed him slightly and he'd lashed out. And that's human. Do you know what I mean? And I think we need to cut each other a bit of slack at the moment. It is a tough time. We are in competition with one another, whether we like it or not. And we, we need to be careful not to overreact when we get criticised um, on Twitter. We are in uncharted territory, I think, as an industry and as a, you know, and as a mm. community or whatever you want to call it when it comes to things like Twitter. Because, you know, if I have a minor grumble about the fact that I can't get my printer working or a piece of software's crashed or something like that, then I can have a minor grumble in the office and nobody's going to know about it. I'm not going to hurt anybody's feelings. I'm just going to be venting my frustration. Now what we do is we vent our frustration on Twitter and the person that wrote the software yeah. can have their feelings hurt just as much as anybody else. And the other thing I, I've yeah. sort of realised is that, you know, sometimes... Because we've been around a while and you will get people, often the same kind of people that complain about, in inverted commas, same old faces um, who, who speak at conferences. Yeah. But those are the kind of people that go, well, you know, they can't understand why, you know, we still get wheeled out in our, in our <laughs> Zimmer frames. And, you know, because there are smarter, cleverer, newer people that have something different and interesting to say. And, you know, there are lots of these people around. But, you know, what we have, and I will sort of fall back on this, what we have, of course, is experience. And I think that that counts a lot, which mm. is why these days I don't necessarily talk about CSS. And, you know, I'm just about to talk about a CSS workshop that I'm doing. But 
conferences i'm not really interested the the the, the points that the, the things that i want to communicate that i feel i've got something still left to say are not about css anymore they're about client relationships um i spent the morning writing about briefs and what makes a good brief and a bad brief and all this kind of stuff and you know that's the kind of stuff that i think you know you need experience to you know to be able to talk about mm. Absolutely. I mean, to be honest, I don't really question it very much. I'm just incredibly mm. grateful people ask me. Um, and I think there is another thing that we, you know, this is getting a bit philosophical, I guess, and a bit kind of, I don't know, pretentious. But I think there's also a degree whereby those of us that work in this industry very much build our self-identity on our reputation, on our abilities, etc. A lot of people do that with their jobs, don't they? They build know, their, their self-identity on it. Yeah. And I think that's where, where you kind of get into dangerous territory. Because if you do that, then if somebody criticizes you for, you know, a speaking slot that you did or that, you know, uh, that pull back, you know, gives me a bad review on iTunes or whatever, that that kind of undermines you as a human being. And I think what I've kind of grown to learn as I've got older is that really I don't want my self-identity to be built on my work. Um, you know, and, and for me, that's why I work very hard to have, if, if I'm honest, web design, and this is going to be shocking. People don't say this in the web community, right? But my work on the web is just that it's work, right? If I'm on it, I love my job. Don't get me wrong, but it's not my passion. It's not my life. It's not what I get up in the, I don't leap up in the morning and think today I want to create something amazing online, right? And you hear that all the time in the, in, um, the web community or web industry or whatever you want to call it. I'm not sure that's particularly healthy. No, I don't think it is. I remember, um, when I was a, a guest on Sarah and Josh's, uh, Happy Monday podcast mm -hmm. and they always have their famous question. I don't know whether they still do it, but, their question was, and what's inspiring you at the moment? And I think I said something along the lines of, well, nothing, actually. <laughs> you know, I've not been anywhere. I've not done anything. I've not seen anything that I can use as fuel for creative work. Mm. And we're getting a little bit off topic, but some people think of and talk about inspiration as if it's like caffeine. And so, oh, I can't, I can't have, you know, I can't even think before I've had my, you know, my second cup of coffee of the day as if, you know, inspiration yeah. is, is that kind of, um, that kind of fuel. And actually, to be honest, for a great, I would say many, many, many times more people than we even know are out there who are doing creative work to one level or another, turning up to work, getting stuff done. You have to dig deep to get something out. Mm. And you can't rely on inspiration because you might not have had it on the number one, six, eight bus. Yeah. That morning. And, and, and those people will go into work. They'll do their job. They'll go home to their family. 
They will have a great time with their family. They'll go out to the pub with their friends that know nothing about the web, don't care about the web. I mean, every me and Mark, um, I think it was me and Mark, or was it me and you? I get confused. You all, you all look the same, you white middle-aged men. I'm the one with hair. You're the one with hair, yeah. So uh, I was talking about how I go out every Monday night, right, to the pub down the road. And one of the guys, uh, I go out with a couple of friends, and one of those friends, well, both of them, I know nothing about digital. They're in no way involved with the digital. One of them's a mechanic, right? And I think Mark said he went out with a plumber, you know, every week. And, and um, the the friend, that, the mechanic friend I go to, he just takes the piss out of me because I don't do a proper job, you know? And I think that's really healthy. I think too many of us exist in this kind of web bubble um, where, you know, where all of our friends are techie people. Um, and so that's when your self-esteem starts getting built on on your job because that's your identity. That's who you are. My identity isn't Boag World. It isn't what I do for a living. My identity is a lot more complex than that and balanced on, on many other legs, so to speak. Um, and I worry sometimes um, it, I, when I look at like the Silicon Valley or the Brighton community or, or these different groups when, where they're very insular. And I, I don't think that's healthy. And I think when, when times are tough or when things change in the industry, that can threaten your self-esteem. And that is where I think, you you know, you start to get trolly in your behavior and you start to get unacceptable in your behavior. I remember when I used to do sales a long, long, long time ago, I would take it personally when we didn't get a job or I didn't sell the gear. Mm. When they bought a competitor's product, I would take it personally. I would think, what, did they not like me? Yeah. The buying decision was probably made up of many, many factors, and one of which would have been the fact that, you know, I didn't wear a suit and, you know, that was fine. But I used to take that incredibly personally and I would see that as a as a reflection on me. Um, and you know, I do kind of carry a little bit of that with me in what we do now. And, you know, if you don't get a job, it's like, oh, am I not good enough? Yeah. But there are so many factors that influence things Exactly. Like that. And you have to have a mature attitude to be able to understand that. And the other thing which I've only recently really managed to detach in a way and want to really detach over the, the, the last couple of years is this kind of separation between your work and your actual personality, if you like. Yeah. And I think that, and this is again why uh, I think some people get trolley and why we then take what they say so personally is because you, you, you feel it. Hmm. You really do feel it. Let's just take a break for a second because I want to do some businessy things. Sure. And then we'll come back to this in a second because I think we're sort of touching on Twitter and I want to talk about Twitter and how that's affected things and uh, maybe some ways about pulling back from that in a minute. But before we get to that, can I just do a sponsor? Yeah, go on. With my own stuff, because what I want to do is I want to mention that I've got a new date for my CSS 3.4 Responsive Design Workshop. So I mentioned last week that I'm hosting a workshop at Beyond Telerand in Berlin in November. Um, cool. And there are only, I was found out today, there are only seven tickets left available for that. So if you're going to go to Beyond Telerand, you should go to unfinished.bz slash workshop and you'll get a 20% discount if you use the offer code unfinished. It will save you 60 euros. But as well as Berlin, 
I'm now hosting that same workshop just the week before. That's the 29th of October. That's a Wednesday at the Web Is Conference in Cardiff. Wow. And there you'll learn how to create layouts using Flexbox, implement magazine-style layouts with CSS shapes, and how to improve typography with multi-column layout. Plus, there's a whole lot more, and we're going to have a lot of fun. There's an offer code as well, unfinished, that will save you 20% off the £240 plus VAT price. And even that's the cheapest workshop that I've ever done. So it's really I was going to say, £240, and is that a, like a whole it's day a full workshop? Day. It's or? a full day. Flipping out. No, it's good. Because, I mean, I, you, I just, I'm just going to interrupt you, I don't care. But if, if you've never run a workshop, as some of the listeners probably haven't, it is the most knackering experience it's really hard work, isn't it, running a full-day workshop like that? No, it is and incredibly hard. 240 quid, I think, okay, I'm bound to say that, but I think that's a bargain, personally. Well, when we've done workshops in the past and we've been responsible for hiring a third-party venue, like yeah. the studio in Birmingham and uh, I think some of the places in London that we've hired for, you know, we have to, you pay a delegate day, right? You pay a certain yeah. amount per delegate, per person that comes. And that includes the catering and all the refreshments and the venue hire and the AV and all that kind of stuff. And that usually works out to be between 70 and a hundred pound per person. That's our sure. cost yeah. when we do workshops on our own. So that's why the workshop is, usually around about 350 quid for a day and that's all inclusive but with this particular one this is happening at craig lockwood's founders hub in cardiff and we don't have the outgoings because he already has the building he always has the av there won't be lunch provided people will be going out and getting their own lunch at costa downstairs or finding a sandwich so we're able to do it for a lot less and still make a, a reasonable margin cool that sounds good. Anyway, go so, to. So are you, go to. Are you at, da, da, shut up. Go to the web is, the web.is to, uh, to get your ticket. So are you actively using Flexbox in your projects? I have been doing very recently. Yes. Cool. Cause I'm, I'm teaching my son to code at the moment and, and I it came to doing layout stuff and I thought there's no point in me teaching him anything but Flexbox which was a problem because I haven't coded for ages, so I didn't know how to do it. And I've been doing it, kind of working at it with him at the same time. And I could really do with a workshop. That sounds like a brilliant idea. Well, come along. Because I would I would love to. I can, unfortunately. <laughs> well, talking about sons and doing coding, Alex is just finishing off his own website, his Beardy Scientist website, because he's off. We're taking him down to uh, to start his PhD at the weekend. And he wanted to finish this website off. And what's he going to build it on? He said he built it on Perch. Oh, right. Cool. Which coincidentally is our He's actual next sponsor. Oh, that's an okay sponsor. That's perfectly acceptable. Please carry so on. So what I should say, proper sponsorship now, is that Perch, this is my serious gravelly voice, Perch <laughs> is a content management system that's been designed to help both design agencies and individual designers and developers and geologists <laughs> deliver great sites that their clients will really love. And I know this because our clients have told us time and time again that they really like using Perch. So with this in mind, Perch focuses on a few key things. So I imagine that, you know, like us, once you've designed a site, you don't want to spend a long time integrating a CMS into it. For example, we've just been working on a small little filler site over the last week or so. We already made the HTML and the CSS templates for the pages. We just wanted to hook those up with a CMS. 
But, you know, I know that's easy because it's quick to get Perch up and running. You can even just make static parts of a page editable if that's what you want to do. Mm. And I also know in this economic climate that, you know, it's really hard to charge a client for training, even if it's just an hour or two, showing them how a CMS works so that they can update their site. But, you know, as well as the money, there's also the time that that training takes. And, you know, I'd rather spend that doing design. So Perch has a really, really great editing interface that's based around pages. So what the client sees matches what they see on their site. So the content's easy to find and it's easy to edit and they don't need a lot of training. And it probably also means that they're more likely to keep their site up to date too, because they won't have to, you know, look at a manual every time they want to update something. And unlike other CMS systems, especially those that are based on static files, Perch is designed around performance. And we all want our sites to be faster load and maybe able to handle peaks in traffic. So Perch has been designed to be fast from the ground up to make sure that it always performs well. And Drew and Rachel, they make Perch and they're constantly working to improve it. So recently I discovered that there's a new assets panel when I was working on this little website design. And it's simple and it's fantastic. Drag and drop file uploads just make it so easy Mm. for clients to work with their images. And it's just a really great example of how Perch is developing all the time. And they provide such good support as well. That's the other thing. No, and amazing. it's so cheap for the support well, that they provide. I know. It's like 60 quid per license. So I love Perch. I know lots of other people that love Perch. So to find out more, go to unfinished.bz slash grab a Perch, and then they'll know that we've sent you. Awesome. Cool. Right. Back to Twitter. Yes. Erin Kissane, who is not somebody that I know personally, but I know of mm-hmm. in our industry. She wrote a an article this week called Ditching Twitter. Mm. And I really love this article because it's thoughtful and it was, you know, almost melancholy in a way. Yeah, it was. But unlike some other dear Twitter exits, it didn't feel or sound bitter. It wasn't histrionic. It wasn't designed to be attention seeking where, you know, you want people to say on Twitter usually, Oh no, it's okay. We love you. That's a shame. We'll miss you. All that kind of stuff. It wasn't about anything like that. It was just a, a cool, calm, reflective, uh, look at, not just a service, but how Erin had used it and how it had changed over the course of the years and how her usage had changed and how she was going to be using it in the future. And it was a lovely, lovely article. Because I mean, perhaps I misunderstood because I only looked at it relatively briefly um, and I skim read it because it was just before we did the show. Was she actually saying... Um, that she was giving it up completely. I thought she was very much kind of outlining how she was going to use it in a different, and I thought ultimately more sensible way. No, that was exactly what she was doing. She yeah. wasn't. She wasn't saying, as other people I've seen, I'm not using Twitter anymore. It's horrible. Um, you know, everybody on here is horrible. Everybody on here is harassing me, or everybody on here is making me miserable. Therefore, I'm not going to use Twitter anymore. It wasn't anything like that. It was. I've come to a realization that things are different and this is how I'm now going to be handling it. Mm. It was interesting. There's a little quote here that I cut and paste into, into my notes. 
Because I've got notes, you know. I have notes. You have show. notes. Yeah, I, do, yeah. I thought you just made it up as you went along. Well, you see, that's 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 how professional we are. Because we just make it sound as if we're making it up uh... as we go along. <laughs> you see. See, I'm impressed. No, she says here before. It's meaning Twitter got big. When I lived in a little apartment with red walls in Portland, Twitter was my water cooler, my connection to freelance colleagues and a few friends in the tech world. Later on in Brooklyn and Queens and Manhattan and Portland again and Brooklyn again, it became a treasured part of my broader social life, encompassing work and school and friends from all over. And I feel very much the same way. I mean, I still only follow 50 people. And many of those people are the people that, you know, we referred back to the, you know, the golden age of 2005. Uh-huh. A lot of those people that I follow. We are sounding really I know, old. You do know that. I know. But okay, carry it's, on. It's, it's what I can remember. Yeah. A lot of the people that I follow, even though I may not have seen them or really spoken to them very much in a very long time, I still follow them. For example, Cameron Moll. Mm. Other people have kind of come into that and I would consider them to be, you know, either uh, sort of friendly associates or I'm interested in what they have to say. So I follow them. A lot of people I don't follow, even though I would consider them to be friends because I don't care what, you know, what time they go for coffee. Yeah. And there's no reflection on them. I'm sure they don't follow me for similar reasons. But I used to very much use Twitter, you know, working where I do and for so many years on my own. That's how I used it. It was my mm. little connection. And it was a natural extension to how we got to know each other, which was mm. through blog comments. Mm. You know, we'd all write articles. I remember first talking with Jason Santamaria or Simon Collison or, um, well, you know, Andy Budden, Jeremy Keith, all of these people through blog comments. Mm. And this is, I suppose, what you were talking about when you, you mentioned sort of the industry expanding is – more and more different people come into that social, into that circle, if you like. So there are people there that I talk to and that I follow people like, for example, Trent Walton. Yeah. Who I didn't know back in 2005 because I don't know, he's probably still at school <laughs> or Brad Frost, who was probably in yeah. the push chair. Absolutely. At that stage. Hmm. Something that, Erin says in this article here, she says, I'm not angry at Twitter for changing, but I've been sad to feel that something so oddly entwined with my intellectual and emotional life is now beyond my use. And she uses this phrase, ambient intimacy. Mm-hmm. And I really like that. And I think that we've also got now with Twitter, this is where some of the danger comes in, I think. We've also got what I would call ambient familiarity. Yeah. People think that they know you and they know what you're like. And they form an opinion about your personality or your ethics or your morals or whatever because of the fragments that you share. Yeah. And I think that that's new and different. And that's where things have become sometimes unpleasant when this sort of more expanded outer circle will be chiming in about things that, you know, they know half, you know, they know half about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I know that I've sort of struggled with that and have felt recently. It's like, well, what am I using this for now? You know, if I want to send you a message, I'll send you a private message. Mm -hmm. 
what am I using this for? It's not my water cooler anymore because it's like my water cooler that's broadcast to 30,000 people. Mm. And, and that puts a different spin on it and it puts a different spin on it that I didn't, you know, expect. And how people like Jeremy Keith, who have, I don't know, 250,000 people following them or Jeffrey, how, yeah. how they cope with this kind of stuff. There is no doubt that it's changed. Um, and, and like so much, for me, it's, it's become a commercial tool, if I'm honest, you know, um, with 30 odd thousand people following you, um, it, it becomes a way of you promoting whatever it is that you need to promote. So there's an element of that. Um, there is an, also an element that you do want to communicate a little bit of who you are because, People buy from people. Yep. So there's a commercial element of that. Absolutely. Um, and you know, and it saddens me in a little, a little bit that it's become like that. I did exactly the same with my blog. I made the same mistake with my blog. My blog started off as a place where I wrote about anything that popped into my head and then it became popular. And, and so you started having to take it seriously and think about what you were writing. So there's that element to it of, of, personal things becoming a work tool um there's also yeah i think what you're saying about um i you know i've posted stuff on twitter very personal stuff um and i'm very very open i'm not one of these people that really think before they tweet um and so i've posted personal stuff before and those people that actually know me um, have understood that and, and got what I was saying. And then while other people have completely misunderstood me, um, and therefore laid into me quite heavily. Um, so, and, and for a while that used to really hurt until I adjusted my perception of Twitter, um, and recognized that it's, it's not Facebook. It's not like Facebook where you control the people that follow you. And I think that very much changes the dynamic of it. Um, so I've kind of had to learn that really I am only interested, you know, if somebody criticizes me and I don't know who they are, um, I have to dismiss them, right? I've no choice. They might have valid, completely valid opinion. They might be a very nice human being, but because I do not know them, I can, I, I no longer allow myself to take on board their opinions, right? Um, because there is, it, you, there is too much vulnerability in that. If you're going to open yourself up to everybody that comes along. Um, another thing that I found, um, with Twitter is I used to get very angry at some of the things that people would tweet that I disagreed with. Um, <laughs> Uh, because I'm an opinionated so-and-so. What I discovered, mine, is that most of the time, it wasn't my friends that were tweeting it. They were retweeting. Um, so one of the things that I've done now is I've shut down retweets. So I don't see, if it's not something that some, one of my friends has actually written themselves, because I think a lot of people retweet without really thinking about it. So I, I kind of filter using that. I also filter using um, uh, muting hashtags and things like that as well, because there are certain topics that I don't want to, I don't want to know about, you know, that I choose to protect myself from. 
Um, because I think it's, it, it, that's an important aspect here, not just with Twitter, but with, with social media as a whole and even to do with the web as a whole that you need to, prov- you need to protect your own psyche. And I know that there is, um, some situations where, um, you can leave yourself vulnerable. So certain types of commenting on Twitter. Um, I've, I've decided to mute in order to protect my own psyche. Um, I never read YouTube comments to protect my own psyche. Um, I try, I never look at my iTunes reviews anymore because I'm protecting my own psyche. In actual fact, I probably take it, a lot of people are appalled at me over this, but, um, I take it quite to the extreme that I don't, I don't read the news or watch the news because I find I find a lot of, you know, the news is always by its nature is negatively bias. Um, and I don't want to fill myself with that the whole time because I'm an optimist. I'm somebody that believes the best in the world. I believe the best of people. And I, I think you, you stop believing that if you constantly feed yourself and focus on the negativity that's around. Well, we, so, yeah, we really, really need to, to pick up on this in a minute because this, this is, really really what i wanted to talk about today in terms of like what i would consider to be to the state of our industry but mm-hmm. i just want to go back to erin's article for a second which is related to what you said i mean she says here because she basically outlined a a strategy for dealing with and protecting her own psyche in the way that yeah. you described and some of that is through um cutting out the number of um ways that she accesses twitter yeah. So, for example, um, she'll use lists of people that will be kind of industry people that she wants to not necessarily follow in her timeline, um, but needs to. You know, it would be useful to to see links that they're sharing, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, she's moved some of her conversations, her personal conversations, not to a protected account, but to like an unlisted account, which is you know not necessarily mm-hmm. identifiable of her. But and this is something that I've done. She deleted Twitter apps from her iPad and stopped using the web interface and everything else. And one mm. of the things that I've done recently, I know I know no longer have Twitter apps on my iPad. Right. Um, I do have Tweetbot on my Mac, and I do have it on my phone, but I've disabled all notifications. Yeah, that's a big one. Disabling notifications because I think otherwise. It invades every aspect of your life. Well, it's completely distracting. And this week I had a major meltdown last night. I don't mind telling you, you know, I'm supposed to be writing. I'm supposed to be putting together a new talk and the last week or so has not gone well. Right. And it's not gone well because I've been finding it hard to get into the groove, but it's also not gone well because of things that have distracted me. Mm. And I try and try and try to get started to sit down and think, I'm going to write this section this, this afternoon. I did this yesterday. I'm going to write this section this afternoon. And I get there, I sit down, I've got everything ready and my phone rang. Yeah. And it was a client question. And, you know, the guy didn't know not to call. I should have put him on do not disturb, but it mm. completely broke my, you know, my concentration and I did nothing for the rest of the afternoon. Yeah. So Twitter is, terrible for that kind of thing and also i don't disable hashtags for everybody but i and i retweets for everybody um i do have certain hashtags that i i tweet particularly conference hashtags 
Yeah. You know, I love an event apart, but every single time there's a new event apart, I mute the hashtag because otherwise it's soundbite city. Yeah. And I do disable retweets from some individuals because they, you know, they may be passionate about a particular topic, but when that's what you see all the time and it's negativity. Yeah. It can be very, oh, I'll just use the word demoralizing. And I, and you know, somebody's going to be saying to me, listen, you think it's demoralizing for you reading tweets? Just think how demoralizing it is to suffer abuse or harassment or whatever it is that somebody's tweeting about. Well, you know, <laughs> I have to protect myself in the same way to a certain yeah. extent. And, you know, and I'm really sorry about that. And this is what Erin was really talking about, this kind of strategy for, for using Twitter. And, and I really resonate. You know, it's like the web as a whole. We've, we've had to learn new techniques for dealing with the information overload that, that the web as a whole provides us. And now we carry that around in our pockets too. And, you know, if you're not really strict about what you're looking at, what you expose yourself to, you overwhelm yourself, you distract yourself and you demoralize yourself. And that is just damaging. It's damaging to you as a human being and your your roundness as a human being. Here's what Erin says. Uh, she says, I want to reduce the volume of awareness raising angry tweets that I see about issues that already saturate my awareness. Yeah. Things like vulgarity and bias in the software industry, the existence of truly horrible politicians and the latest squalid online mob attack. Yeah. Amen to that. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's not, and I think there will be some people listening to this that will think, oh, you're, you're just, you know, hiding away from the world and you're ignoring issues. Y yes, to some extent, they're correct, but there is so much the world is what you make it, right? And there is there is so much good in the world and there is so much bad in the world, right? And and so you've got to decide the type of world you want to live in to some extent, the kind of world that you can cope with. You shouldn't ignore the pain and misery in the world. Absolutely not. But neither can you focus exclusively on that. Neither can you allow that to be all you see. No, um, this is which is what you important. want to get on to, isn't it? I this is very, very, very important. But before we get to that, because talking about good people, we've got mm. another sponsor. Cool. And I do like talking about them because they are good people and they make a really nice product and it's called Anti-Type. Oh, I haven't heard of this one. New design tool that's been, as they say, created for UX designers by UX designers. And that sounds cool. So put simply... Antitypes a UI design tool that helps you express your visual design, interactive and user experience design ideas to developers and to customers and to users all in one file. And I think there's been a need for a long time for a real web design in inverted commas tool, something that's been made specifically for designing for the web. And I think Antitypes that type of tool. How do you spell that? I'm Googling it. A-N-T-E-T-Y-P-E. And it's been designed as a UI design tool from the start. In fact, one example of this is when you design with anti-type, UI elements, they get organized into a hierarchy, which makes perfect sense, unlike mm. layers, because organizing elements in this way makes a few other things possible too. And this, this is brilliant. They call it automatic layout. So here's something I think we've always suffered from. You've made a design, you've got a bunch of elements on a page, and you need to add an element in between some others. And then that means you spending time nudging the position of a whole load of other elements 
so that you can fit the new one in. Not with anti-type, no. You can add or remove any element and then anti-type will just reflow the design, just like on a web page. I think that feature alone makes it worth the money. And it's got responsive web design tools built in. Anti-type's layout engine automatically recalculates the size of design elements at different widths. And you can also specify whether elements resize or show and hide at different breakpoints. And this means that you can design a responsive website or application in one file on one screen rather than on several. You know, I was skeptical about it at the beginning, but it actually really does work. It looks like a really good prototyping tool uh, as well. Fabulous. And there's a lot more because with anti-types interaction features, you can easily demonstrate the feel of a design by defining actions, events, widget states, and change screens. And speaking of widgets... They've got 400. 400 widgets for all major platforms, and there are more free widgets and examples available from their user community. Interface elements, buttons, sliders, controls, you name it, they've got it, and that makes for rapid prototyping. Yeah. I'm not going to go on. Uh, Anti-types available now for 129 of our English, Scottish, and Welsh, and <laughs> Northern Irish pounds. For a tool this good, that's a good price. You can go to unfinished.bz slash antitype. That's A-N-T-E-T-Y-P-E. And if you use the offer code unfinished before the 31st of October, you'll get 15% off. And you get, I've just seen you can download it for 30 days to have a good play with it as well, which looks good. I've just clicked that button. <laughs> right. Acts of kindness then in our industry. Mm. This week, Wednesday, was it Wednesday or Tuesday? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know what you're going to talk about. Well, I went down to London mm -hmm. and I went to see Blondie and Chrissy Hind at the iTunes Festival. Okay. Didn't have a ticket up until that point. Didn't even apply to have a ticket. But last week I tweeted about the only, the only people that I'd really want to see would be Robert Plant and Kylie and Chrissy Hind and Blondie. Next thing I know, really nice guy, somebody that I've never met, never come across in the world, never seen him, never interacted with him on Twitter, sends me a message to say, I've got a ticket for Blondie on Tuesday night. It's yours if you wow. want it. Cool. I, you know, I liked your work, you know, I've read your book and, you know, we use your examples sometimes in work and, you know, I saw your tweet about this and, you know, my wife can't go, so here's a ticket. And I had a brilliant time. And he was a lovely guy, Gordon, if you're listening, Gordon Sutty. He was such a great guy. Now, I know what some cynical people will be thinking at this point. Oh, well, that's because you're famous, Andy. But actually, I've seen this time and time again just between random people do you know you know i remember very very early on um we were doing the 100th boag world and we did a live event and uh, there were um this little girl turned up whose name is anna debenham <laughs> who obviously you know now but it was the first time that she'd ever gone to any web event and she got adopted and looked after by ryan taylor and paul stanton um and they just took her under their wing and they really looked after her and, and, and there was such care going on there and such support that it was amazing. Another example is, um, Jamie Knight. Jamie Knight is, um, autistic. And when he first started to get into the web community, he was adopted effectively by Alan Rowe, um, who just really invested huge amounts of time in him. 
So I think it's something that's happening at all levels of the community. So whoever's sitting there thinking, oh, well, that's just because Andy's famous, bollocks. Well, the reason I bring this up is that as well as doing this workshop at the Web is, Craig has asked me to speak as well. Mm -hmm. And I don't have a ready-made talk, but I do have something that I really want to say about what the web is now and how I feel about it, particularly lately, because we hear mm -hmm. so many people complaining about the bad things that they mm. see or experience to the exclusion of everything else. Mm. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to call this talk the web is Soylent Green. Yeah. Remember that film, Charlton Heston yeah. film? Brilliant, because, yeah. you know, as we know, Soylent Green is actually people, so there's a bit of a lame connection there. Yeah. But what I want to talk about is these acts of kindness that I see and I hear about more or less every day. Right? Yeah. And I don't follow too many people, but I do see people in the web design industry just being kind to each other all the time. I mean, they share experiences, they share work. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now had it not been for people sharing code and mm -hmm. mistakes of code and, you know, all the stuff. You know, we've, we've built an industry on the back of effectively view source. Mm. And people discovering how to make CSS work and sharing it and everything else. Helping each other, giving time and knowledge. Uh, I don't have as much time as I used to have really for, you know, people sending me CSS questions and I don't get CSS questions much anymore anyway. Um, but a lot of people do, you know, a lot of people contribute to open source projects or GitHub projects and those things, you know, those things benefit everybody. Yeah. And then the other thing is that I've seen a lot is people supporting each other through personal problems. Yeah. Now there are people that I know that are going through and I don't know them well, you know, they're not in my very tight circle of friends, but there are people that I know that you would know that are going through incredibly bad times at the moment mm. that, you know, we have, you know, have a conversation with over the telephone and they're saying, you know, I really want to, um, you know, I really want to do something different. And, you know, you say, well, why don't you give so-and-so a call? And, you know, they do and something happens. You know, there's, there's a lot yeah. of support for each other through work or mental health issues or relationship issues or whatever, right? Yeah. And I see this every day. Yeah. But if you listen to some people, it's all doom and gloom. Mm. Sexism, discrimination, harassment. You know, I know that, I know that these things happen, right? I'm not putting my head in the sand. You know, and I. But I'm, they're not at all. That's not no. it. And I've been on the receiving end, you know, but these are things that happen in life. They're yeah. not problems that are limited to or systemic in what I conceive to be the web design industry. Yeah, no, I would, I would totally agree with that. And I'm not saying that the problems aren't there, but I think that there's a very, very big difference between, say, the tech industry that you read about from Silicon Valley and mm -hmm. what goes on over there and what we know to be what I think of as our small corner of the web, if you like, our, yeah. our expanded circle of friends. Yes. Yeah, I've refused to use the word community. <laughs> <laughs> why not mine because you've just described community to me supporting caring and loving one another sharing is that not what community is i personally find community to be a bit of a trite term 
Okay. And I think that people, people use the word community too widely. It's lost its meaning. And when you, when you hear of people referring to the YouTube community, <laughs> of, of people that yeah, you know that that, 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 that really is. hang out on a website. When you hear people talking about the PHP community, the Python mm. community, the Ruby community, the yeah, accessibility I mean. community, it's not a f- community. It's people <laughs> that do the same thing that may or may not know each other, that may or may not be nice to each other. Yeah, yeah. No, I accept that. That's true. But what we do. You know, the people that, and I suppose it's expanded out as, as everybody is. I, I think that everybody's experience is like raindrops in a puddle, really. The people that I know, you know, my, my people, uh, it, it radiates out from me in that little splash. So what you're saying is you are the center of the web community. No, I'm the center of my web community and you <laughs> yeah, are the I center of yours. And I'm just teasing. And we all have That's whatever fine. it is, you know, however many rings around us. And sometimes they overlap. And mm. I may not be familiar with all the people that you talk to and you're not familiar with all the people that I talk yeah. to, but you know, generally speaking, you know, you, you meet up at certain places, usually conferences. And I think that that's, that's very different from, from anything else. I think we're in quite an unusual situation. Um, you know, you don't see this in many other industries. You know, I work in, as I'm sure you do in lots of different industries. And there are some where I see it, education, higher education, they've got a strong sense of what we're not calling community. Um, but then there are, there are other, you know, a lot of industries that, you know, essentially hate one another. They're in fierce competition with one another. Um, so I think there's, you know, we do have something quite unique that has been and been built by, the core of the, you know, by, by the very nature of the web, the open source nature of the web. Uh, and a lot of people moan. There are different ways when you see something being eroded, there are different ways of responding because it is without a doubt things have changed. One, one is to, to focus on the negative to say, you know, um, or oh, there's sexism or oh, there's, you know, trolling, there's aggression with one another, etc. Um, and, and to point out the problems, to highlight the problems, to focus on those problems in the hope of addressing them. And I can respect that point of view. But personally, I feel that sometimes the more you focus on a problem, the more bigger that problem becomes, the more of a reality that comes. Um, and, and personally, the approach that I prefer to take is live life like the world was the way I want it to be. Um, so as a result, you know, I, I interact and see and focus on elements of the web community that excite me and encourage me. You know, things like raising money when somebody is ill, things like supporting somebody that's going through a bereavement, things like getting together and raising money for a charity, things like, you know, writing a blog post where you highlight the people you most admire or respect, you know, things like giving away um, tickets when you've got them or or whatever it be. Um, and, you know, there's a, a great principle, which I, I, I am a great believer in, and I think it's an American principle. So I am deeply ashamed. I believe in it, obviously. Um, <laughs> which is, you mentioned it, random acts of kindness. 
and that that actually integrating that that kind of belief into your life and trying to live that way you know so a great example of that is i have um a, a task because i'm a, a huge omnifocus freak that pops up every monday morning um that it's called send a gratitude email and every monday morning i will send an email to somebody thanking them thanking them for something um i i try and make a point of you know encouraging people to you know if i have read something on a blog post that's helped me you know i write that i don't write you know just on blog posts where where you know it hasn't worked or or i disagree with it or whatever else you know being an active encourager you know i think is absolutely essential to make the world the way you want it to be you know if we want the web community to be a better place a nicer place we need to live like it's a better place and a nicer place i guess that's my kind of attitude with it all anyway and i suppose some people will say well you know that's a very oh my god i hate to use the word but that's a very kind of privileged position you know you're very lucky to be able to um you know draw those distinctions well i yeah yes and no you know i have i have endured as i know you have my fair share of abuse right online um you know and and in my personal life I have chosen, you know, I have endured my fair share of, of, um, hassle and trouble and problems. You know, just because I'm a middle aged, middle class white guy doesn't mean I'm immune to, to life's problems. And, and I, I'm still convinced that, that making, making a mental decision to be a positive person, to be, to be somebody that looks at, believes in, desires, the best um, and and focuses on the good in the world rather than the bad. I believe that's a positive way to live. I do. And and screw people basically. If they if they don't if they disagree with me over that, that's fine. You live your life the way that you want to live it. But that's the way I'm choosing to live. I think that we have a tremendous amount to be proud of in mm. our small corner of the web and industry. If you want to get it, Brad Frost. Young Brad Frost, mm. um, who's also doing a workshop at the Web is in Cardiff, but nobody's going to go to that one. <laughs> he, he's going to bother coming over, <laughs> except to sit in on mine. He wrote a really lovely piece on the yeah. pastry box back in March, which he called the values of the web. Mm. And he said, I don't work in the tech industry. I work on the web. Every day I see people pouring countless amounts of hours into projects they turn around and give away for free, spending nights and weekends writing blog posts and tutorials, sharing resources and thoughts openly. They do this not for fame or fortune, but because they want to contribute to something bigger than themselves and make the web a bit better. And I could just read the whole thing. You know, I could literally read the whole article. You know, there's nothing that I, I don't, uh, agree with in, in his article. And I think that we've got an enormous amount to be proud of. And we should always remember that there's more good every day than there is bad. And somehow, I think that that's not the impression that we would get if you were looking no. in from the outside. You would think that things were terrible. Um, and I'm sure for some people, they are terrible. But they're not terrible for everybody. And I, and even... Like I've got a friend, right, who um, has got ME and she suffers on a daily basis with constant pain. 
But she has made a decision that she is going to live life in a positive manner, to not focus on her illness. And I've got enormous respect for that. She's got shitty life by any any measurable standards, but she doesn't live like it. And emotionally, she's not like it. Because, again, we're getting a bit philosophical, but reality is what we choose to perceive it as. And I choose to perceive it as a positive place. And And Brad is another great example of that. You know, Brad is somebody that, perceives the world in a positive place and makes it a positive place by his behavior and the way he chooses to live you know for example right you know brad brad is the cool kid these days isn't he everybody loves brad he, you know he does these amazing talks he's talented he, you know he's the kind of person that i deeply despise i really a, hate him yeah he's a he really is but you know he, he he things are going great for him um now i i retweeted no, I didn't. I shared one of the posts that he wrote. Okay. And he thanked me on Twitter with such a sincerity and such, you know, he didn't need my tweet for crying out loud. This is a guy whose career is on the rise and, you know, and, and he's doing great, but he sincerely appreciated it and he sincerely um, felt grateful that someone had, had, had liked what he'd done and had appreciated what he'd done. And, and I love that. I love people with that kind of attitude, with that attitude of, you know, um, just gratitude for everything that they have. And we become so spoilt as a, you know, kind of Western European, North American middle class people. You know, and, and we focus on the negative when our lives are so incredibly rich. And it, yeah, I'm getting preachy now. No, no, I agree. <laughs> Cause Brad wrote in this article here at the end of it, he said, am I an, I am an optimist. You're goddamn right. I am. And I've stopped apologizing that for a long time ago. Yeah. I actually think that this optimism and the values of the web matter more now than ever. And it's just. That's how I'm beginning to feel about things. And it's why I agreed to do this talk at the web is because you know, it means me, you know, sitting and writing it and I haven't got one, but you know, I'd like to base it around sharing stories of this, these acts of kindness, because I think mm. that we are in a, in a wonderful position. And we are you know not lucky because we make the industry that we have, but we are fortunate that there is this culture of, sharing and kindness mm. that I think we just mustn't forget. And I don't want to, I don't want to poison our perception of that um, by focusing on the negative. I want to focus on the positive because mm. I think that if you, if you make this sort of mental adjustment, I'm not saying you walk around with your head in the clouds, but if you do make this mental adjustment to think about the positive, as I've really tried to do over, you know, the last few years, I think it makes a difference. Yeah, absolutely. And not just to you, but to, to other people around you as well, you know, because, you know, I'm inspired by Brad's optimism and I'm inspired by his youthful energy, although I really hate it. Uh, you can hate somebody yes. and be inspired at the same time. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's perfectly acceptable. So I think that that's it really. <laughs> and, you know, uh, there was just a few things that, sort of people have been talking about this week 
um, and writing about this week. And actually, I really like the fact that Erin wrote a long piece. I really like the fact that Dan Eden wrote a long piece about how he's feeling. Mm. Um, I haven't read Carl Smith's piece yet that you mentioned earlier on. That's a, that's an interesting, see, Carl, I've got huge respect for Carl as well because he's, he's carved out, you know, this doesn't come across in the piece because it's not really what it's about, but I've talked to him about other stuff and he's carved out for himself the life that he wants, you know, um, cause that's another aspect of this as well is this, it's so easy to sit and moan about the way the world is. Um, but be crippled by fear to try and change it, you know, and I, I, I've gone through that, you know, I've gone through periods with, with headscape where, you know, I've suffered from, from serious depression because I felt overwhelmed by it. I felt that I was the bottleneck to everything. I was the problem that things wouldn't function, you know, if, if I wasn't pulling my weight and doing certain things and all the rest of it, and it was damaging home life and it was damaging this and that. And I moaned about it and I complained about it and I got angry at people because they seemed to be so reliant on me for everything and, and all of these kinds of things. And eventually I, I reached a point where I couldn't cope anymore. Um, and Carl says a similar thing in his post. Um, and I, you know, I made a decision. I've got to change this. I can't carry on like this. And I took the risk. I took the risk of going, screw it. If the company falls apart, it falls apart. And, and I, I just started living the way I wanted the world to be. And it worked. And, and, you know, perhaps I got, I got lucky and I was surrounded by good people, but it wasn't until I let go. It wasn't until, I, I decided to live as I wanted to live rather than decide, uh, living the way I thought people wanted me to live that I discovered actually other people would step up. Actually, other people would help me that they were there for me if I was honest for them. You know, and it's, it's not until you show some vulnerability. And I think, was it Carl or, or Dan? One of the two said this in their, their article as well. That was, it's not until you show vulnerability, until you say, I'm struggling, I'm, 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 you know, finding things difficult that you allow people the opportunity to amaze you. And I think so often they do. You know, I look at people that have just come out on Twitter and said, you know, I'm really screwed up. I am really struggling and people step in and are there, but you've got to let them do it. You've got to, you know, rather than moaning about them, you've got to be open enough to, to give them the opportunity to get in and help. Yeah. It's difficult though. Opening up is never the easiest thing. I'm terrible at it, as you well know. I mean, I do bottle things up as I've done over the last couple of weeks, actually, you know, becoming more and more kind of frustrated that I'm actually not getting my work done. Until someone like you comes out and says, I've just spent a fortnight and I've done nothing. Well, you need somebody to come out and say that, that, you know, I completely lost it this couple of weeks. I've done nothing. As soon as somebody like, you know, you come out and say, look, I've, I've had a shit two weeks. It's been terrible. I've achieved nothing. Everyone else, until you say it, everyone else is sitting and thinking it's only me, right? You know, and I've discovered that, you know, you saying that you've achieved nothing over the two, makes me feel so good. <laughs> because 
because I'm not alone. I'm not the only person that's up and down emotionally, that sometimes I can't cope with work, that sometimes I have days on end of not really achieving anything. And then maybe the next week I have a manic time where it all just splurges out of me. I think too often we expect, we think other people operate like machines, right? Churning stuff out, doing stuff consistently that, and it, it, we need to start being honest with one another. You know, one of the most delightful posts I have read was from Greg Hoy, um, who is the MD, um, a happy cog who posted at the earlier this year, we're having a shit time financially. It's going all a bit wrong. No, I remember that post. And I was so pleased to read that because I was terrified it was just headscape and that we'd lost something and something had gone wrong. And him posting that gave me the confidence to talk to other people, people like yourself, um, people like um, Craig and and people like Mark Bolton and all of that. And I found out everyone's in the same position. So suddenly I've gone from a position of feeling like my life is screwed up. My business capability is shit, that I'm a failure as a as somebody running a business to discovering, oh, actually, I'm in the same boat as everybody else. That's why I'm a great fan of kind of openness and honesty and transparency with one another. Um, you know, uh, Dan James is another great one from Silver Orange. You know, he stood on stage. He told everybody how much he earns. Good for him. Good for him. Because then that gave me a yardstick suddenly to go, oh, actually, you know, maybe we're underpaying each other, um, ourselves a bit. Perhaps I need to be a bit braver. Or, oh, perhaps I'm I'm taking too much out of the business and I need to, need to leave some in. So the more open and honest we are, not just about our code, but about every aspect of our professional and personal life, the better it is. We're too bloody British. We're too stiff upper lip. I think that you're right to a certain extent. <laughs> but yes. I, despite you know, despite everything, I am um, reticent now about sharing personal stuff. I mean, I've written about, you know, I've written about depression before. Um, you know, I've spoken about, you know, my troubles before on this podcast. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've written some stuff about it too. Um, and there are things that people know about me. They'll know about my dad's suicide. They'll know about things like that. As I've sort of got a little bit older, I, I, I worry about that. And I do respect people that actually do maintain, um, more of a, of a, of a, of a barrier, if you like, between their kind of personal life and their work persona. I think that's, that's absolutely fine if you've got the support mechanism elsewhere. Yeah. And I do think that there are a lot of people though that don't. And it is reassuring. I was reassured by your, by, you know, by the post that Greg wrote hmm. because I was thinking, Christ, is it just, you know, is it us? You know, where, yeah. where have all the big jobs gone? And it isn't, you know, there's other companies that we know pe- that people run that are feeling exactly the same pinch. And when it comes to kind of emotional issues, yeah, particularly kind of mental health related issues, I do think that it helps. And I've never really thought of myself as being somebody that people look up to. And, you know, and I'm sure they don't, but I do know <laughs> that whenever I've talked about things in the past, people have gone, actually, it's, you know, yeah, I'm glad that you talked about that because. I don't even think it needs to be that they look up to you, although obviously people do. But I think it's just because I'm not alone. 
Because I do think, you know, I think there is um, an element of the, the nature of our, I mean, look at what our job is. Just take, just think about it for, for a little while. You know, our job is basically sitting alone in a room, building shit on a computer. Half of us are on the Asperger's spectrum. The other half are creatives that are up and down emotionally. We're not the most rounded, <laughs> sensible, normal human beings on the planet. I'm sorry, we're not. That is true. And so we need, you know, and so I think mental health is going to be a continual issue within our community. No, not our community, our industry, sorry. You know, I do think that that is something that we we are going to need to be aware of. We've seen people commit suicide. We've seen people try and commit suicide. We've seen people burn out and leave the community entirely. You know, we've seen all kinds of different scenarios where people have suffered severely. And I think there is a need for us to be more honest with one another about our emotional states. I'm not saying some people take it to the extreme. Some some go down that kind of needy route. Yeah, needy and oversharing. I would yeah. I would classify it as. And there there is there is a line and I'm not denying that. Um but I talk about the fact that I I suffer from depression, but I've never talked about it you know, I don't expect anybody to do anything about it. And I never present it in a way that anybody needs to do anything about it because, you know, I've, I've got my family that helped me with that. I've got medication that helps me that, et cetera, et cetera. So I cope, I have coping mechanisms. I've learned coping mechanisms, but I think there's still a value in me saying I have suffered from and do suffer from depression because again, it emphasizes to other people that you're not alone. It's not always easy to, to listen to. And like you say, there is this kind of fine line. And I, I sometimes am wary, you know, if I'm having a problem or I'm having a shit time, you know, I am wary of saying something sometimes because I don't want it to be perceived as being needy. Is that a British thing? Yeah, it is partly. I think there's something else with you, which you, you may not want me to be talking about on the podcast, um, but you can edit this out. I think there's also an element whereby you're worried somebody's going to turn around. And I think this is a classic thing with depression that a lot of depressed people suffer from, including myself, an element of worrying someone's going to turn around and say, well, you've got no right. You've got no reason to be depressed. You know, you're successful in your career. You're white, middle class, middle aged, all the rest of it. You've got the whole world is on your side. You've no right. And, and I think that that is that is one of the real evils about depression um, or mental health generally is that guilt and that inadequacy and that sense that in some way you don't get to be like that. Hmm. No, I, I can see that. Certainly I felt like that for a long time until I started expressing it, until I learnt more about it as well. I've never really felt undeserving. I have tremendous crises of confidence and have done for for many years. Yeah, the imposter syndrome. Well, you see, I, I mean, Alex mentioned imposter syndrome and I've seen other people talk about imposter syndrome before and I'm sure that it exists. But I don't like to just cover myself in a blanket. 
you know, I don't want to just think about it being imposter syndrome. Um, I think that, you know, you can have a crisis of confidence without it necessarily being, you know, a, a syndrome. Yeah, no, absolutely. I don't think yes. that necessarily, and I'm not a medical person and I'm certainly not an expert in this, but I don't think that feeling a certain way necessarily means, means to, means that it has to be, you know, a medical problem. No, I think the, I think that's a slight misunderstanding of the imposter syndrome. I think that's something that everybody has. You know, that's my understanding of it. And I'm not a psychology expert, but it is part of the human condition um, that some people have a stronger version of than others. And self-doubt. Um, yeah, self-doubt. Yeah. Call it self-doubt then. That's fine. Um, <laughs> it, you know, it's semantics. Isn't well, it? it is. But, you know, self-doubt, crisis of confidence, not really feeling that you are at the top of your game. You know, or maybe yeah. feeling that you could be doing so much more because you see other people doing so much more or what you perceive to be so much more. And I don't, but don't you think that that's also a nature of our, our industry and another pressure that our industry puts on us? It, it was two factors to that. One is that the goalposts are moving the whole time. That just as you kind of get your head around it, it then shoots on again and you've got to run to keep up. And then there's also you're exposed to so many people. You know, you you see what everyone else is doing and it does feel like a rat race. What We've all got to, um, you know, we've all got to build our personal brand and, you know, oh, Brad, for, um, you know, Brad is, is, is being invited to more conferences or doing more things or, you know, being perceived as more successful. Where in other industries, we might be completely unaware of everything but a handful of really big names. Well, here's here's where I've been, I think, over the years. And it kind of sums things up quite neatly, I suppose, in that, you know, for many, many years, I had very low self-esteem. Mm. And I compensated for that through work achievements. Yeah. Whether it was getting a big deal when I used to sell things or... You know, people saying nice things about a book or a conference talk or anything else. I bolstered my ego mm -hmm. with that kind of um, energy. And yeah. people would say, you know, oh, look at the ego on him. Well, you know, okay, well, maybe, you know, maybe I went too far sometimes. But also, I don't think that actually, you know, having an ego is necessarily a bad thing. But what I did was I, I used that as a drug. Yeah. Um, and, I use that to sort of build my own self feeling of self-worth. Mm. And I think one of the challenges that I've had over the last few years is because the industry has changed and my work has changed and my interests have changed and I'm doing less and I'm not invited to as many things. I'm not complaining here, but that does have an impact. And when you, what happens is, and what has happened to me is I have to reevaluate and, you know, look myself in the, in the mirror and go, well, who are you? Because you're not the person that, you know, that people mm. know. You, you know, you're really not the, the, or you're not the person that people think they know. And that's, but that's the tricky thing, I think. And that's what I was talking about earlier on with this kind of, you know, ambient familiarity. Yeah. They're all part of the same, all part of the same feelings. Yeah. Well, this has been a very philosophical, philosophical discussion. It, so, well, that's what you wanted. You were in the mood. I think people will be surprised because I imagine that most people that would expect to listen to you and me talking about stuff would just expect a load of um, silliness, superficial banter. It, I mean, that goes back to the the you know the ambient <laughs> what people perceive of us. I mean, I, I they, that if if that's my one weak spot, that's it. That that people 
I, I find it really hard when people see me as the fool. And I know that I create that in myself because I have this very self-deprecating sense of humor. So it's my own fault. But yeah, so uh, hopefully people will discover, you know, that we can have a sensible conversation. Maybe. <laughs> well, I feel this overwhelming urge now to say something ridiculously stupid, to just swipe it all down and uh, undermine it all. But I'm not going to. It was a good chat. No, I think people are going to actually really, really like it. I hope anyway. I hope. Yeah. Um, and another time we'll talk about mm-hmm. Doctor Who and Judge Dredd. Well, we have been talking for an hour and 40 minutes. I know. That's disgusting. I know. I hope you can edit this completely down. No, do you know what? I tend not to. I tend to just top and tail it um, and clean up the clean up the audio, take out the the sound of seagulls and (laughs) and whatever else is happening in your world, and leave it as it is. Yeah. So anyway, we should wrap it up. Yeah, we should. So people can thank you, thank you. No, thank you for your time. People can follow you on Twitter. This is the only official bit that I do. I do the same spiel at the end. I don't do the intro, but I do an outro. I'll, I'll shut up. No, no, you, you, can, you can interrupt because people can follow you on Twitter. You are Paul. At Boagworld. Yes, you are. And there's me at Malarkey. To ask questions or suggest topics, you can message this show on Twitter at unfinishedbz or you can email me at hehas at unfinished.bz. Thanks again to our sponsors this week. They were the fabulous Perch and Antitype. As always, you can support our show by supporting them. And sign up for for Andy's conf, uh, workshop. Yes, I'm not allowed to say that. Not Brad's. Don't sign up for Brad's. Whatever you do. <laughs>